Last time we spoke about the amphibious assaults in New Georgia, New Guinea, and the naval battle of Kula Gulf. The boys in New Guinea were edging ever closer to their objective of Leh, while drawing the Japanese attention elsewhere. Over in the Solomons, Admiral Kuzaka tossed as many aircraft as he could to thwart the multiple Allied landings, but it was to no avail. Having depleted his air power, now he turned to the Navy to see if they could reinforce New Georgia before another Guadalcanal situation could occur. Rear Admiral Teru Akiyama was given the task of launching a Tokyo Express to New Georgia, while also trying to give some fight to the enemy. Aboard his flagship, the Nizuka, Akiyama did indeed give a fight to the Americans, showcasing a brand new type of radar and the ever-trusty Type 93 Long Lance Torpedo. The Japanese managed to land a few of their boys, and now a real fight for New Georgia was about to begin. This episode is the fall of Mubo and the Battle of Kolombangera. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, watch check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I just interviewed Cody from Alternate History Hub, talking about some alternate history with the Pacific War. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. Over there, you can get early access to all of my content and some exclusive podcasts. Check it out, it means a lot to me. So the past few weeks have been chaotically juggling multiple events across the Solomons and New Guinea, and this week it shall be no different. So let's first jump into New Guinea. General MacArthur's forces managed to pull off the Nassau Bay landing, getting General Savage, who should be pronounced Savage, I'm very aware of that, I just keep calling him Savage, I can't help it, needed some reinforcements on his eastern flank and a new supply route. Now, the landing in Nassau Bay was part of an ongoing operation codenamed Doublet, aimed at dislodging the Japanese from Bobtubi and Mubo. Taking these were necessary for the future push against Ley and Salamawa. Mubo held an airfield, and its capture would greatly facilitate troop movements towards Salamawa. The movement in the interior towards Mubo was complicated by rough terrain. There were a series of ridges that could be defended sternly by the Japanese. As we have seen the past few weeks, there was Roosevelt Ridge, the Pimple, Green Hill, Observation Hill, Ababia Ridge, and the Batoy Ridge. They proved to be heavily defended. For the Japanese headquarters, all of the Allied offensives were confusing as to where exactly the main target was to be. General Nakano remained confident Salamao was the main target, and he acted accordingly by beefing up defenses there. He ordered Major General Chichi Miroya, the commander of the 51st Infantry Division, to fortify and defend Salamawa. 
As part of this, he also ordered Moruya to dispatch around 1,000 men to halt American forces trying to move up the coast towards Lake Salas. Now by July the 2nd, Brigadier Moen's plan was for the 2 and 6th and the 2 and 5th battalions to take Mubo and Observation Hill, while the new Taylor force would capture Betoy Ridge and then the ridge between Bu Alang and Bu Kambul Creeks. After this, the forces would link up, and the Japanese lines of communications along the Bui Gap Creek would be severed. While this was going on, the 15th Brigade, who was working in conjunction with the newly landed troops, well, they would be performing an offensive directed at reducing the Japanese presence around Lei and Salamawa. Part of this offensive involved the inexperienced 58-59th Battalion, who had a hell of a time facing the Japanese at Bobtubi Ridge. The 58-59th Battalion were two previous militia battalions from Victoria. Initially, they were a defensive force in Australia, not meant to go to places like New Guinea. But when times are tough, as they say. They got a taste of hand-to-hand -hand combat in late June, and while they did not make much progress, they certainly impacted the campaign, forcing General Muroya to request reinforcements so he could maintain a firm defense for the approaches to Salamawa. Nakano made it clear Bob Deby was of grave importance, stating, This location is the last key point in the defense of Salamawa. Muroya received Major Otoichi Jinyo's 1st and 3rd Companies of the 80th Battalion. They had marched through the Coconuts area to Bob Deby, bringing with them two mountain guns of the 26th Field Artillery Regiment. Meanwhile, Colonel Araki sent his 1st Battalion over to the old vicar's position. By early July, Moroya now held five infantry companies, around 500 men strong in all. But with all of this activity hitting the north, Adeki became worried and ultimately decided to move his regimental HQ and his 1st Battalion to Comatium, leaving only a 2nd Battalion to hold Mubo. On July the 4th, Brigadier Heathcote Hammer took command of the 15th Brigade. He was a veteran of the 2nd Battle of El Alamein, one of the most iconic battles of World War II, and yours truly actually wrote quite a large episode for Kings and Generals on that one. I really do hope that comes out before you hear this podcast, or else I just uh, kind of gave a really bad spoiler. Also, um, just to kind of point something out, it's a, it's a bit of an interesting episode. It's going to be a, a really long one compared to the regular Kings and Generals YouTube episodes. I think it's about double, if not two and a half times in length. I might actually make a, an exclusive podcast on it on my Patreon as well because I really put a lot of research into that one. The second battle of El Alamein is very complex. Anyways, Hammer had taken a German bullet right through both of his cheeks, in his face, but he did not lose a single tooth in the process. I guess he was pretty lucky on that count. He earned a Distinguished Service Order for his time in the Middle East, and in June of 1943 he was promoted to Brigadier given command of the 15th Brigade. He was considered one of the most original and magnetic leaders of the Australian infantry. Hard as nails was said to be his motto, and as you train, so you fight was his creed. When the 58-59th Battalion stalled, he was tossed into the thick of it. Now do remember, he was coming directly off the victory at El Alamein, so he was, I guess as you can call it, desert-minded when he was tossed into the unforgivable jungles of green hell. He would have to deal with completely different terrain, different types of troops, and a different type of enemy that wasn't Italian or German. Another result of the delays at Bob Tubi saw General Savage dispatch Major Worf's commandos over to stop the Japanese from escaping Mubo, 
On July the 5th, General Savage ordered Hammer to send the company towards Tambu Saddle and Goodview Junction, where they could cut off the Comantium track, thus preventing the Japanese from escaping Mubo to the north. Meanwhile, B Company were on the bench-cut track, carrying out ambush attacks. The two mountain guns brought up to the old Vickers position were sporadically hitting Australian positions to their misery. C Company was performing a diversionary attack, while D Company was trying to capture the coconuts, and they were successful at taking its northern region by nightfall on June the 6th. The next day, the 80th Regiment were pushing the 5859th Battalion back as aerial attacks from 6 Bostons hit the old Vickers position, allowing C Company to charge in with further support from D Company's motors. The men charged up the steep ridge into Japanese machine gun nests and pillboxes. Likewise, the 1st Company of the 80th Regiment with support of the 1st Battalion 66th Regiment were launching counterattacks out of Comantium. The Japanese managed to ambush some Australian supply lines, inflicting some casualties. On July the 9th, the Australians tried to charge again into the old Vickers position through Sugarcane Knoll, but it went the exact same as last time. The machine gun nests and pillboxes were simply too much. Bobtubi Ridge proved a tough nut to crack, but all of the activity was causing more and more Japanese units to move away from Mubo. By this point, Mubo was being defended by 950 men, and of those, 770 were frontline soldiers of the 66th Regiment and the 14th Field Artillery Regiment. And so the time was ripe to hit Mubo. Moan tossed Companies A and B from the 2 and 6th and Company C from the 2 and 5th towards Mubal Creek. C Company of the 2 and 6th at Lababia Ridge, D Company of the 2 and 6th at Saddle, and the remainder of the 2 and 5th Battalion into reserve. Wharf's commandos went to work, cutting off the escape route along the Comantium track at Goodview Junction, but his forward units were spawned by Japanese patrols. As the commandos approached the area, the Japanese came down from Orodubi, ambushing them at Ambush Knoll, because of course that's its name. Silly Aussies and this resulted in some lost supplies. Hammer was determined not to be thwarted by any delays, so he ordered Worf to launch a counterattack immediately. The commandos were able to push the enemy back and reclaim their lost supplies, some of which were motors and machine guns. On the night of the 6th, Worf was ordered to leave a force to secure Wells Junction, while the rest of his men would proceed to cut off the escape route. During the morning of July the 7th, Moen's leading companies were wading through some waist-deep water in the Bupal Creek due south of Observation Hill. The Allied assault against Mubo was set to begin at 9.30 a.m. on the 7th, with Mitchell bombers coming in to strafe the Kitchen Creek, Woody Island, and the Observation Hill. After this, some Bostons and Liberators would likewise bomb and strafe some other targets. The view from the ground was quite the spectacle for Moen's men. It looked like the entirety of the Mubo Valley was being enveloped in thick black smoke and flames as the bombers dropped their payloads. Over 159 bombers and fighters dropped 109 tons of bombs over the Mubo area. Even if the bombs did not directly cause casualties amongst the Japanese in the area, it still caused absolute chaos. Once the aerial attacks had dissipated, the ground forces opened up with their artillery and charged in. A Company of the 2 and 5th advanced without encountering any opposition, successfully climbing the northern slopes of Observation Hill. The southern slopes proved much more difficult with the Japanese putting up a fight against B Company. B Company was forced to take up a defensive position in a kunai patch southwest of the slopes of Observation Hill. 
During this time, artillery over at the beaches of Nassau Bay were being moved further inland and they would arrive at Napier by July the 8th. This allowed Taylor Force to have the guns necessary to launch an assault upon Bitoy Ridge. Taylor's men managed to get to the southern slopes of the ridge by 3 p.m., while A Company touched its forward crest. B Company likewise broke through to the north and got to a point between Kitchen and the Buisavela Creek. A Company attempted another assault against Observation Hill, but was repelled again, prompting Captain Dexter's D Company to be sent in to reinforce them. July the 9th saw numerous patrol clashes as Australians prodded deeper and deeper into the area. In the afternoon, the Japanese sent a strong counterattack against the 2 and 5th companies, seeing some fierce fighting, as noted by Arthur Pearson of D Company. In most cases, we were firing blind, but sometimes we were able to pick up the smoke from the rifles. Pearson at one point jumped into a weapons pit, trying to draw the Japanese fire his way. A bullet came at him, piercing the stock butt of his rifle before slamming into one of the soldiers beside him, killing the man dead. Pearson had no idea where the bullet had come from and frantically fired into the jungle, hoping to hit a Japanese sniper. A large reason why the Australians could not find the Japanese was because the Japanese rifles had a very, very low muzzle flash. Honestly, it was perfect for night fighting, and it was made specifically for that. The next day saw a lot of the same, just more patrol clashes. On the 10th, B Company engaged the enemy around Kitchen Creek. Meanwhile, U.S. infantry had cut the main track north of the Buyalang Creek on the 9th. The Americans began advancing down the Buygap Creek, then south to the Comantium Track by July the 10th, before hitting Buygap, where they drove off a bunch of Japanese. The Americans guessed the Japanese on Mubo were using a route northeast along the Bukumbul to withdraw to Mount Tambu. With the Australian and now Americans infiltrating the sector, General Nakano had ordered the Mubo garrison to pull out as of the 11th, back over to Comantium. To mask their withdrawal, the Japanese planned to begin moving after sundown. By July the 13th, they made their way along the saddle to Mount Tambu but the Americans had spotted them and gave them hell using artillery. The Japanese got out, but they suffered many casualties doing so. On July the 12th, with the Japanese leaving the area, the Australians seized the Pimple, Green Hill, and Observation Hill with very little opposition. Thus, the Allies had finally driven the Japanese out of their positions near Mubo, but they had also allowed them to escape. It turned out to be quite the fiasco, with General Savage and Herring both believing they controlled the U.S. troops of the 162nd. But in truth, General Fuller refused to relinquish command to either of them. This confusion helped the Japanese squeeze out, though they did suffer 313 deaths and 981 casualties. The Australians received around 300 casualties. Mubo had fallen. Its airfield was captured. Mop-up operations would go on for some time, but most of the Japanese outposts were cleared out. With Mubo taken, the path to Salamawan Lei was ever closer. But now we are going to have to head over east into the Solomons. General Wing's 172nd and 169th regiments were assembling at Zizana by July the 6th. Their task now was to advance along the Bataki River towards Munda. Meanwhile, on the northern coast of New Georgia, Colonel Liversedge's men successfully landed at Rice Anchorage by July the 5th. 
His force was the 1st Marine Raider Battalion, the 3rd Battalion 148th Infantry, and Companies K and L from the 145th Infantry. His men began their advance towards what was known at the time as the Dragon's Peninsula. And at the same time, as a result of the Battle of Kule Gulf, the Japanese were able to land some of their men of the 13th Regiment over at Villa. Defending Villa were forces led by Colonel Tomanari Satayoshi. With more men in hand, General Sasaki intended to move his troops via barge through Barioko so that they could reinforce Munda. Sasaki had already brought his 3rd Battalion 229th Regiment over from Villa using said barges. He was quite lucky the first time, but he now felt the Americans would try to attack the airfield directly, perhaps by setting up artillery on the nearby Hopai Island. Rovian Island likewise could be used as a staging area for amphibious tanks to charge over. Thus, Sasaki brought over some 8cm dual-purpose guns and some 13mm anti-aircraft machine guns to try and defend the beaches. He also ordered Major Sato's 2nd Battalion of the 229th Regiment to dig some anti-tank ditches along the beach with the intent of smashing any enemy tanks at the water's edge. He received word of the landings made at Zazana on July the 3rd, prompting him to quickly reinforce his eastern line that ran north from Ilagana Point. By July the 6th, he had the 3rd Battalion, 229th Regiment, and Sato's 2nd Battalion holding positions along the Ilagana Line, with a roadblock position held by a company who were using felled trees and barbed wire in front of the Barrique. Sasuke also had at his disposal a company of the Kuri 6th SNLF led by Commander Okamura Saburo at Beroko, with a small detachment of the 2nd Battalion, 13th Infantry led by Major Obashi Takio. Meanwhile, General Wing managed to get most of his 172nd Regiment to the mouth of the Barrique, but the 2nd Battalion of the 169th remained at Rendova, and the 1st and 3rd Battalions were moving inland towards the Japanese roadblock. Unfortunately for the 3rd Battalion, they had not found the roadblock by the night of July the 6th, and they dug in just a little bit east of it. They did not establish a good perimeter for their foxholes. They did not set up any tripwires nor barbed wires anywhere. Thus, when darkness came, so did the Japanese from the roadblock. The Japanese performed their classic infiltration tactics. The men in the foxholes began to hear random screaming, the odd firing of rifles all around them. The Japanese began to infiltrate their perimeter, with one soldier reporting that Japanese troops were approaching while calling out company codenames in English. It was a brutal night, to be sure. The shaken men of the 3rd Battalion advanced with Company I leading the way. They found themselves running into a Japanese machine gun position by 10.55pm around the Munda Trail. They retaliated with motors and machine guns, but could not properly see where the enemy was. Luckily, B Company from the 172nd showed up attacking the roadblock from the rear. In the carnage, three platoon leaders were wounded, K Company's commander was killed, no progress was to be made. Firing lanes were drawn out. The Americans were trying to find the enemy, but their muzzle blasts were too small to see. Some of the Americans tossed grenades, but they could not get close enough to effectively do so. By 3.30, the 3rd Battalion withdrew from what they called Bloody Hill to dig in for the night, but the Japanese continued to harass them. According to the 169th Infantry, it was a sleepless night, spent under continued harassment from enemy patrols, speaking English, 
making horror noises, firing weapons, throwing hand grenades, swinging machetes, and jumping into foxholes with knives. On the 8th, the roadblock was overrun, costing the 3rd Battalion of the 169th Regiment and B Company of the 172nd Battalion 6 deaths and 13 wounded. The next day, the 169th finally got to their assembly point at Barricade Line, while Colonel Livers Edge and his men were crossing the Tamaku River. Colonel Livers Edge planned to send Colonel Griffith's 1st Raiders with two companies of the 145th Regiment to swing around the west shore of the Inugai Inlet prior to assaulting Baroko, while the 3rd Battalion of the 148th Regiment would advance over to the Munda Baroko Trail to cut off Munda from any reinforcements. Livers Edge estimated taking the Inugai Inlet and cutting off the trail would be done by July the 8th, and it was critical it was done as fast as possible, as his men only had three days' rations on hand. In the late afternoon on the 7th, the 148th managed to reach the trail and they created a roadblock the following day. Griffith's team secured the villages of Triri and Maranusa, clashing with a few Japanese patrols along the way. After capturing the villages, the men came across some Japanese documents showcasing the defense plan for Inugai Inlet. On the 8th, the raiders moved out of Triri, en route to Inugai, only to run into an impassable mangrove swamp. Meanwhile, Major Obashi launched a counterattack against Triri, which would eventually be repelled. Griffith got the men to resume the advance using another trail west of the swamp, and they soon found themselves around Leland Lagoon, where they clashed with some more Japanese. The morning of the 9th saw General Wing's main advance begin. At 5 a.m., General Barker's three battalions of artillery positioned on both shores of the Honiavasa Passage and some 155 millimeters on Randova opened fire on Munda. The artillery put several thousand rounds, 105mm and 155mm high explosives upon Munda. This was followed up by a naval bombardment by the USS Fahrenholt, Buchanan, Macalla, and Rolf Talbot, who were firing from the Blanche Channel, showering Munda with over 2,005-inch shells. Then, on top of all of that, 107 Dauntless and Avengers dropped 79 tons of bombs over Munda, Inugai, and Baroko Harbor, beginning at around 8.30am. The Japanese recorded that the area was lit up like it was daytime. The 172nd Regiment forded the barricade, and the 169th was unable to move because of the battle against the Japanese roadblock. On the night of July the 6th, Admiral Semenjima sent the rest of the troops that were supposed to be transferred during the Battle of Kule Gulf, 1,200 men of the 2nd Battalion of the 13th Regiment. The men were aboard four destroyer transports, the Matsukaze, Yunagi, Mikazuki, and Satsuki escorted by the cruisers Sendai and Shokai, and four other destroyers, the Yukikaze, Amakaze, Tanikaze, and the Yugure. They only saw some harassment from a small strike force consisting of five PBYs as they made their way over to Villa, but they safely returned. Admiral Kuzaka requested some naval reinforcements from the combined fleet, so Admiral Kogo sent Admiral Nishimura's Cruiser Division No. 7, arriving on the 11th. Alongside this, Rear Admiral Izaki Shunji came over with light cruiser Jinsu and destroyer Kiyonami, taking command of the reinforcement unit. Back on land, the Kurei 6 batteries were firing upon Rice Anchorage, prompting Griffith to begin the assault on Inugai Inlet. Supported by mortars, B Company stormed the village of Bakuneru. The Japanese began withdrawing from Inugai, allowing the Americans to seize it by the 11th. This came just in time, as the raiders had run out of food and water by this point. The raiders had paid heavily, suffering 47 deaths, 80 wounded, and 4 men were missing. 
The Curry 6 SNLF would report 81 deaths and a platoon of 50 men had gone missing as well. The heavy losses forced Liversedge to request the 4th Raiders be landed over so that they could capture Barocco, but they would only arrive on the 18th. Meanwhile, Colonel Tomanari brought forward his 1st and 3rd Battalions to Barocco to help reinforce Munda. At around 4 p.m., the 3rd Battalion led by Colonel Takabayashi attacked the American roadblock, nearly dislodging them. By nightfall, the Japanese took up a position on a ridge to the 148th's northern flank. There was a series of counterattacks until the next day, which saw a bit of a stalemate. Then the morning after, the Japanese simply backed off. The 148th Regiment would hold on to the roadblock for more than a week, but would quickly run low on food. It mattered not, however, as the Japanese had just advanced along another trail further west, prompting Liver's Edge to order the roadblock abandoned by July the 17th. Now, Admiral Kuzak wanted to reinforce the important volcanic island of Kolombangera. Kolombangera was a perfectly round, stratovolcanic cone soaring out of the sea to an altitude of about 5,800 feet. The Japanese had a garrison on Villa Airfield on the island's southern shore. The island often saw men and supplies put upon barges that would make nighttime transits across the straits to Munda Point. Kuzaka sought to toss another 1,200 troops. Major Yamada Tadachi's 2nd Battalion, 45th Regiment, and the 8th Battery of the 6th Field Artillery. Transporting them would be the Matsukaze, Yunagi, Minazuki, and the Satsuki coming from Bun. They would be escorted by Admiral Izaki aboard the Jinsu alongside five other destroyers, Mikazuki, Yukikaze, Hamakaze, Kiyonami, and the Yugure, all coming from Rubal. Unfortunately for the IGN, Allied Coast Watchers saw and reported their movements, and Admiral Halsey responded by ordering Admiral Ainsworth and Task Force 18 to intercept them. Ainsworth would have the light cruisers USS Honolulu, St. Louis, and the Royal New Zealand light cruiser Leander. He would also have destroyers USS Nicholas, O'Bannon, Taylor, Jenkins, Radford, Ralph Talbot, Buchanan, Maury, Woodworth, and Gwynn. Now, half of Ainsworth's force came from Captain Ryan's destroyer squadron number 12, who were quite inexperienced. Ainsworth set up his force, making his vanguard the Nicholas, followed by O'Bannon, Taylor, Jenkins, and Radford. Honolulu, Leander, and St. Louis followed up in the center. Ainsworth specifically placed Leander in the middle because she held inferior radar, and he preferred St. Louis to take the lead out of the cruisers. Ryan's destroyers would take up the rear with Ralph Talbot, followed by Buchanan, Maury, Woodworth, and Gwynn. By 5 p.m., Task Force 18 was sailing once again for the Kule Gulf. Task Force 18 had left Tulagi at 5 p.m. on July the 12th under clear skies and calm seas. As they passed Sabo Island, Ainsworth took a course along the west coast of Santa Isabel, hoping to use it to hide his force from Japanese reconnaissance aircraft. At 12.35 a.m., a PBY reported the course and composition of Izaki's force, and so Ainsworth headed in for an interception. As the two forces were converging, Izaki dispatched his destroyer transports through the Vela Gulf to unload the troops, but at 1 a.m. he was alerted of the approaching enemy. It was actually the Americans who established radar contact first, but the Japanese gained visual contact by 1.08 a.m., now, despite the fact the Americans made the first radar contact upon the Japanese, it would actually be the Japanese that detected the Americans about two hours earlier. This was because of electromagnetic impulses the American radar systems emitted. 
The Japanese crews had actually managed to gain a fairly accurate picture of Ainsworth's disposition because of this. At 1.08 a.m., the Japanese had made visual contact, and they were the first to attack, launching 29 torpedoes by 1.14 a.m. Ainsworth's vanguard increased speed to engage the Japanese with their own torpedoes, while the cruisers turned to deploy their main batteries and engage to a starboard side. Ainsworth, yet again ignorant of the Type 93 Long Lance's capabilities, had no idea the fish were already in the water coming towards his force, as they watched the Japanese destroyers simply turn away. The American destroyers tossed 19 Mark 14 torpedoes, but the Japanese were over 10,000 yards away, turning north, thus completely wasting this volley. When the Japanese column closed in to about 10,000 yards or so, at 1.12 a.m., Ainsworth ordered his cruisers to open fire, concentrating on the Jinsu, which was leading. Honolulu and St. Louis fired an incredible amount of shells for 18 minutes. 1,100 and 1,366-inch rounds joined by 355-inch rounds. The Leander fired 166-inch rounds. The Jinsu was first hit to her rudder, then her bridge killing Izaki followed by 10 or so more shells to her engineering spaces. She was a doomed, burning ship that came to a dead drift quite quickly. The Americans then launched another volley of torpedoes, 21 in all, but they would all fail to hit a mark. By this time, the Japanese torpedoes were finally arriving to the scene. Leander was the first to be hit at 1.22 a.m., forcing Ainsworth to detach Radford and Jenkins to help her limp away. The rest of Ainsworth's forces managed to avoid the rest of the torpedoes. While all of this was occurring, the destroyer transports had successfully unloaded the 1,200 troops, and they were moving further north to withdraw from Izaki's other destroyers. The Japanese were not running away, however. They were just getting to a safe position to reload torpedoes and then to re-engage. After finishing off the Jinsu at 1.45 a.m., Ainsworth ordered his force to pursue the enemy going northwest. They made radar contact again at 1.56 a.m., but Ainsworth doubted the blips to be the enemy. For some reason, he believed the blips to be his vanguard ships. So instead of opening fire, Ainsworth attempted to make contact with the vanguard force, and he began firing star shells. And this would prove to be a fatal error. The Japanese launched another volley of 31 torpedoes. At 2.08 a.m., the first to be hit was St. Louis. It opened her bow. Next was Gwyn, which took a hit to her number 2 engine room. Honolulu received a hit to her starboard bow at 2.11, with another hit to her stern, which didn't explode. Honolulu's rudder jammed, and she nearly smashed right into the Gwyn, coming within 50 yards of her. And that effectively ended the battle, as Ainsworth ordered the task force to withdraw back to Tulagi. The Gwyn had lost 61 men, and she was forced to be scuttled. Leander lost 28. The Jinsu, 482, and another Japanese admiral was dead. 21 survivors of the Jinsu were rescued later on by the I-180. A few others were picked up by American ships. The Japanese had won a tactical victory, and they demonstrated yet again their superior night fighting capabilities. But it was a Pyrrhic victory in many ways as well. The Americans could afford to lose some ships. The Japanese, however, could not. After the defeat, Admiral Nimitz decided to change tactics and would not confine any more cruisers to the Solomons, as they could not hope to chase down the IGN's destroyers, and their troublesome torpedoes were quite a threat. Nimitz wrote a letter to Admiral Halsey suggesting that a well-trained squadron of 2,100-ton Fletcher-class destroyers would be better suited to such waters rather than cruisers. Halsey argued despite the Japanese having superior torpedoes, 
He believed Ainsworth's night battle plan A, that had employed SG radar with radar-directed gunnery, were still superior to anything the IGN had. He thought the real solution was... Appears to be the greatest volume and weight of gunfire that can be incorporated into a highly maneuverable unit, and a unit that is certainly not appreciably weaker than the enemy unit. Regardless, Halsey went to work designating two squadrons of 2,100-ton destroyers to take over New Georgia operations, and he would not risk any more of his cruisers going up the slot on any more of those missions. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there I actually have a few podcasts of my own. Over there you can check out the Canadian experience during the Pacific War with Brad St. Croix, or Alternate History of the Pacific War with Alternate History Hub's Cody. And also, just a friendly reminder, I myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel, where you can get early access to all of my content. And I also have exclusive podcasts just for patrons, based on suggestions that they have. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. The New Guinea and New Georgia campaigns were seeing gradual progress for the Allies, but the naval battles were much less to be desired. While the Japanese were earning some victories, they were rather pyrrhic in nature as American production was going to win the day.